Beyond Bechdale, the podcast series about film and feminism. I'm Contrera, the host and producer. The inspiration for this podcast is The Bechdale Test. And we'll be looking into which films pass and fail the test and what failing the Bechdale Test means for the wider film industry. But as the name suggests, Beyond Bechdale is about more than just a test for women on film. I've also been looking into intersectionality, which looks at how people are portrayed in the arts dependent on their sexual orientation, their race, whether they have a disability or not, their class and multiple other different categories of representation. So now you know my mantra, maybe you'd like to know exactly what the Bechdel test is. It all begins with Virginia Woolf. Slightly less than 100 years ago, Woolf published her essay, A Room of One's Own. Looking at the published literature of the time, she tried to find two women represented as friends in any of the stories. Woolf found the occasional mention of mothers and daughters, but the majority of writers presented female characters solely in relation to male protagonists. Cut to the modern day, and numerous scientific studies have investigated the representation of women on film. Let me read you some stats. One study that caught my eye showed that in the majority of US films made between 1950 and 2006, there were two male characters for every one female. And worryingly, the same study found that when the female characters were used, they were twice as likely to be involved in sex scenes than male characters. Little has changed since 2006, it seems. Weapon of choice, and if you want to stick with your butcher knife, that's fine with me. Very funny, bitch. Between 2010 and 2013, only around 23% of films made worldwide included a female protagonist. And only 7% of directors at this time were women. An American study of the 700 top grossing films made between 2007 and 2014 still showed only 30% of speaking characters as female. In fact, in 2014, there were no female actors aged older than 45 in a lead or co-lead role in that sample of films. Finally, in 2016, a team analysed the screenplays of more than 2,000 commercially successful films and found that men had two of the top three speaking roles in 82% of those films. Women only had the most dialogue in 22% of those films. Are you still there? Just in case you had forgotten, there are 3.75 billion women in the world and they make up 49.6% of the population. I know, I still haven't arrived at the Beckdale test, but we're getting there. The Beckdale test was created for a comic strip in 1985 by comic book writer Alison Beckdale, who drew it from a conversation she had with her friend Liz Wallace, who happened to have been reading A Room of One's Own. In the comic strip, two women are about to go to the cinema when one explains that she only goes to see a movie if it, one, has at least two women in it, Two, those women talk to each other on screen. And three, those women talk to each other about something besides a man. 
you might not be surprised to hear that in the comic they couldn't find anything to see and they didn't go to the movies. Those three stages formed the original Bechdel test, which movie lovers, reviewers and scientists frequently apply to cinema as a measurement of modern feminism. And here's another really interesting statistic. A company called Vocative studied all of the films that made box office returns in 2013 and they discovered that all the films that passed the Bechdel test made a total of 4.2 billion dollars at the US box office and all the films together that didn't pass the Bechdel test only made 2.6 billion dollars in comparison. I'll let those figures sink in. And so here's where our podcast begins. The Bechdel test can be applied to movies, to television and to myriad other art forms. And it's rapidly becoming a judging standard of what makes a good and fair piece of art. But is this the correct measurement? Some films fail the Bechdel test and are still informative. They can even change lives. Many films pass the test but are seen as backward and valueless and don't really help women. And more importantly, I want to explore what happens when a film passes the Bechdel test but fails to highlight the lack of other diversity in cinema. What about people of colour? What about the difference between white women's feminism and black women's feminism? What about Asian cinema? What about cultural representations of women, of men, of children, of the workplace, of culture? This is what Beyond Bechdel is about, looking at what we have and trying to make it better. To that end, I've been talking to multiple women who work in the arts industries about their experiences of gender both on and off screen. We are going beyond the Bechdel test to make the film and TV industries better for all. I will be primarily talking to women about their experiences. Here's a little snapshot of some of the later episodes of Beyond Bechdel. What's it like? Like, what does it actually feel like? Mm, well, it's not always the same. You know, I have, uh, I have good days, bad days, and on my good days, I can, you know, almost pass for a normal person. But on my bad days, I feel like I can't find myself. Um, I've always been so defined by my intellect, my language, my articulation, and now sometimes I can see the words hanging in front of me and I can't reach them and I don't know who I am and and I don't know what I'm going to lose next. I talked to actress Helen Hamer about her experiences of gender discrimination that start in drama school and go all the way up to the present day. I think this is where we'll come to the first point of where you start to see discrimination in women and men in the performing arts performing arts that's the word I was looking for Um, so I remember being at my audition so I went to the Liverpool Institute for Performing Arts um, but I did an audition for a few at the time um, but one of my early auditions was at Lippa so I went to the audition and they told us that out of I think it was who were let's just backtrack who were they so at the audition you would have the head of acting and three acting tutors, and I think they were all there in some kind of way. And what were their genders? 
can see where I'm going with this. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> two women, two men. Okay. Yeah. Liking it so far. And <laughs> head of acting was a woman. Right. Um, a well, and well revered and well known and still well revered today. Yeah. Um, in performing. Yeah. More. The audition day was a whole day. Um, in the morning, I think we did like workshops and things. In the afternoon, we did our re- rehearsed speeches. So they got us to rehearse a speech. They got us to devise a performance. And then we had to do uh, improvisation, which I hate. I still hate. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then it came to question time. Some of the questions, one question I remember that came up was, I think they had 30 places and I think they had about 4,000 applicants for those 30 places. Okay. Um, and they would audition as many of those people as they could. So they said, why, I remember someone saying, why do you take more men than women or boys than girls? Because we're, we're still teenagers at this point. So why so do you someone take... Someone asked uh, why do you take, a group of... Oh, why do you take more boys than girls? And was it a girl, I'm guessing, who asked that? I can't remember. Yeah, okay. Um, probably. I'm just assuming that's why. <laughs> I think it probably saying, was. I can't imagine me. a guy would yeah, say that. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> why, why should... You should be taking 19. less guys but take me <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and they said because there are more parts for boys <gasps> that's why and I until, until that point I had I mean I, I knew so you that were 18 I was 18 yeah. yeah and up until that point I'd known that there are less boys in the industry than there are girls that's just a fact yeah this is the thing about the society you live in uh, culturally that things are considered a norm and it's only looking back now and being in you know hopefully better times that um you realize how out of order things were everybody get down on the ground right now I spoke to movie reviewer Just Jen about the differences between films marketed towards men and women and whether there really are any differences in gender in terms of what films we like. She's not so sure there are any. This movie different from everything else that's coming out, like what's done differently? Um, like I saw a trailer the other day for a new film, What Men Want, which is the uh, the male, no, female equivalent of What Women Want, the Mel Gibson movie in black, which is a new thing I just sort of start saying is when they do a movie using like a, a black, predominantly black cast members, which I think is great. So like, for example, so that is now something that I'm like interested in. If I see that they've, great, they've put Taraji P. Henson in it instead yes. of... I saw that. Yeah, someone else. I don't else, remember any of the other cars. Yeah, me neither. Yeah. <laughs> but I was like, great, Taraji P. Henson, she's been in a lot of things, she's been coming up for some time. I already loved the original movie, What Women Want, but then when I saw yes. she was doing it, I was like, yeah, I'm definitely going to see it. She's a woman and she's black. I can relate to that already. Even though it was called What Men Want. I mean, there's Isn't hard... that everything, every other film? <laughs> <laughs> I did sort of cringe at that, and I was like, I mean, you could have been a little bit less on the nose, guys, with the title. Well, but... the title, I see because they're... They want to. They, they're saying to an audience, "Yeah, you know that film, What Women Want." Sure. Here's a, you know, you must be so stupid. We have to give you something that's <laughs> yeah. like take away W and O, and yeah. then obviously the milk is Our plan, Captain, not Commander, right? Wasn't it Leia's last official act to demote you for your dreadnought plan, where we lost our entire bombing fleet? 
I've also been speaking to industry experts like Dr. Becca Harrison, who has carried out extensive study of George Lucas's Star Wars universe to see how women are portrayed within those films. Her insights are fascinating and sometimes a little bit depressing. Here's a snapshot. Yeah, um, so the tweet was, it was kind of a parody of a lot of the other tweets that I've seen recently of people giving lists of their favourite Star Wars films. Um, one in particular that I saw that was really funny was someone who just listed the films in chronological order <laughs> and then just kind of sat back and waited while people started shouting at them on Twitter for having listed the films in chronological order. Um, so it was, it was actually kind of a parody of that. Um, but it, it lists all of the canon, in, according to Disney, the canon Star Wars films, excluding Solo, because I haven't had a chance to do yeah. that yet, uh, in the order... Um, of how much screen time they give to women. Um, so I can say a bit more about that if that's useful. Yes, um, please. Yeah, um, so I worked that out by basically taking every single one of the films and painstakingly editing out all of the men. <laughs> so I have gone through and I have cut all of the men's dialogue um, as much as I can of the men off screen unless it interferes with a woman speaking um, and I've gone through and tried as much as possible to work out uh, what gender certain characters are so that I can kind of keep them in or take them out accordingly so uh, anything that's in a herd so porgs or link they're kind of in a pack I guess um, they get to say because I'm not going to go through and check each porg um, <laughs> for genitalia genders apparently they have different eye feathers depending oh. on what gender they are. Okay. Um, so um, the porks stay, uh, but then, and the Minots interestingly stay um, from Empire Strikes Back because they don't appear to have a gender. They just replicate by dividing in half okay. and splitting in two. Uh, but then things like droids and aliens tend to be gendered by the franchise. So BB-8, uh, R2 and C-3PO, they are all um, programmed male, according to kind of official canon. Um, new droid L3 in Solo, she'll get to stay eventually because she's programmed female. And I heard that the, the, you, you said the Wampa was a male, is that correct? Yeah, the yeah. Wampa, yeah. <laughs> apparently so. Apparently females exist too somewhere on half yeah. the one we see as a male. Nice to know yes. which uh, gender you're sleeping inside. The women that are there like there's a kind of appalling representation of the sort of diversity of women's experiences. There are really few women of colour. Um, so even the women that are there tend to be mostly white. Yeah. And when you had um, uh, the character, uh, how do you say it? Ma Maz Kanaka. So uh, is that how you say the... Yeah. Even um, uh, the actress ha is playing a, like a, a semi-animated CGI character. So you can tell that she's a woman and she obviously speaks with a female voice. But um, uh, that, that character seemed to me like it didn't matter how long she was on that was the was that the last jedi i've seen a lot of star wars films recently yeah, I mixed them all um, up. so it's lapita nyong'o's character yes um and she's in the force awakens and the last jedi right but yeah obviously lapita nyong'o is not actually on screen no. so even though there's a black actress voicing the character she's yeah. still kind of erased from 
You can't tell racial profile, I don't think, in the character. And I've just remembered. So in The Last Jedi, she's only in a very small scene in which she's on a screen, isn't she? Or it's a communication. Yeah, so even then. Hmm. So your results didn't come out (laughs) as positively as perhaps someone like me expected, given that we had an earlier version of the podcast where I was raving about The Last Jedi and how... Um, you know, we'd had characters like Laura Dern's Holdo and talking to Leia. And I felt like at least this was a film that passed the Bechdel test, which is one of obviously the key tests I use to d- discuss how females are represented on film. So were you um, surprised by the results? I was surprised by how bad A New Hope was. Mm. And I was actually, I was, I mean, I, I guess I was also surprised by the prequels. Um, I think because one of the things that is quite fascinating about the results is that the prequels score lower than some of the original trilogy films, so from the 80s. And you think, well, mm-hmm. you know, we like to think that things get better over time and that, you know, as we move through history, we become more progressive, we get better at representation and that we're moving in this kind of straight line. Um, so it's really interesting for me as a historian, like a lot of my job is actually trying to say to people, no, it doesn't. That's not how it works. Mm-hmm. Why don't you want kids? Excuse me? <laughs> I saw how you reacted earlier. I know what it's like when you're just starting out and you think you have all the time in the world. And, you know, you're not going to be so young forever. Have kids. And you'll be creating something together. This is all just setting. As I stated at the beginning of the podcast, overcoming gender discrimination is only one of the formats of discrimination that we're experiencing in the film and TV industry. I was lucky enough to speak to Courtney Hodgkiss, who unfortunately has chronic Crohn's disease, about her experiences within the industry and how disability affects your career choices. Here's a little bit of that interview for you. I think my friend Toby, the the chap I was telling you about from back home, he, he makes a very good point. Um, when he says, look, if you get up on stage and there is something visibly wrong with you, you have to take the piss out of that first because otherwise they will. Yes. Um, so you need to address that because otherwise people will spend the entire performance sitting there going, what's wrong with her? Which sounds quite stressful, but also that it feels like there's power. Yeah, I think there that. is. It's totally, it's totally taking, taking back the, the ability for anyone to make you feel negative about something because you've already made fun of it yourself. It's quite a self-destructive thing, in a, in a sense, if you're not grounded enough to understand where mm-hmm. this is coming from. Um, but, I mean, as you can, as you've probably experienced, I, I use humour as a deflection mechanism all the time. And I don't know where that came from. I really don't. And it certainly hasn't always been there. And just, I, yeah, just a coping mechanism I think that you've it developed? Is. Yeah, I think it is. And I think I never used to be this... Um, outspoken. I never. Be, I used to be incredibly shy, and I think being sick has actually made me stronger. And I'm a lot less willing to take any shit from anyone. So you wouldn't be who you are today no. if you didn't have your disability, no. and it has given you confidence in a sense. Yeah, mostly because it's been forced upon you, yeah. and I'm guessing because with something like Crohn's. You know, it's embarrassing as well, mm-hmm. and it's um, 
so therefore you've kind of had to go through these horrible situations and yeah. what else can you do but laugh and turn it to your advantage yeah. and I was kind of going oh god all the stuff I watch is really male-centric it's it's really really so I'm really into um American news panel shows okay. so like my life's goal is to be a correspondent on the daily show I don't want to host the daily show Trevor and I was doing fine <laughs> Um, I just want I want to be a correspondent on the Daily Show, so I watched. But I think today. if they if he left, then having a disabled Australian woman would be the perfect next. Maybe. <laughs> a quick list of all the female comedians that I like, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to sit here and see if I can compare any of their styles of humour to each other's mm-hmm. at all. So let me just let me just run through these: Rasheen Connolly, Sarah Pascoe, Desiree Birch, Dolce Sloan, Rachel Paris. Sarah Millican, Desi Lydic, Catherine Ryan, Sarah Silverman, Amy Schumer, Tina Fey, Judith Lucy, Joe Flippin' Brand, anyone. <laughs> um, and may I also just mention a tiny show called Absolutely Fabulous, <laughs> um, which totally passes the Bechdel test. Yeah. Um, but we will get there, don't you worry. <laughs> and I was sitting there looking at this and going, this is probably one of the most diverse lists of, of comedy that you can make. And it's all women. So I think, I think by making a sweeping statement that all women aren't funny, if you, if you go down a list of this many people, you will find, I guess, three minimum people that make you laugh. Mm. And you're only, you're only doing yourself a disservice, I think, by, by discounting them before you've given it a shot. Although Beyond Bechdel is keen to amplify female voices, we are only half of the equation. And so I've roped in Nick Pilkington to give me his white straight male opinion on all issues gender and film based. Nick did a film degree at Austin Tech, the American film school with famous alumni like Richard Linklater. Wes Anderson and Robert Rodriguez, so a lot of men who make film. So Nick is perfectly placed to have debates with me about film and about gender in film and TV. Here's an example of one of our conversations about fridging. I mean, here we are in that definition again. Does it strictly meet that particular definition of fridging? Not necessarily, but she does die to to effectively create that a critical plot element between the Michael Rooker and Sylvester Sloan, which is important to the rest of the film. So when we talk about the Bechdel test, we normally say that in order to pass the Bechdel test, you have to pass all three tests. Mm. But looking at fridging, it's a possibility that it might still exist even if you don't meet all three of these branches of the test. Yeah, because it, it, it feels like it... If it feels like Yeah, fridging. I mean, it does, doesn't it? <laughs> if really? it feels cold, it's cold. Yeah, if it feels like a fridge, then it's a fridge. Yeah. Okay, so we have one... We have a couple of... Um, incidents here where some people might call it fridging and it's certainly in my opinion fridging by script writers directors producers i think it's forget about the forget about what the the plot is there is a you know it's like an inciting incident a narrative device in order to explain an emotional journey for a male hero i think it's an easy thing to do to say if you want to create tension between two male characters a woman is the obvious way to do it. A woman's Male, death or heterosexual what, yeah. characters yeah. and the, the woman being in somehow yeah. related yeah. to the man. Doesn't have to be heterosexual, could be a daughter. So I think next chronologically, the example I can think of is Gladiator. Oh, yes. So 
I think Gladiator is probably going to tick every. I I suspect so. Yes, I mean he, you know, you know, he's his Maximus Decimus, yeah. whatever his name is. Something. Where is it? Maximus Decimus Gladiator. <laughs> yeah, he says it all the time. I've forgotten. It's been a while since I saw the film. So, Russell Crowe being skinny, nice haircut, mm-hmm. back in the day. Yeah. Has a wife and a child. Yep. I think it's a son. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the beginning of the film, it's pretty early on, they are massacred. Uh, well, what happens is, it is early on in the film, because yes. obviously the the... the, the that, I think following the death of um, Richard Harris, uh, Marcus Aurelius, and the rise of Commodus, Joaquin Phoenix. Yes. Joaquin um, Phoenix ob- obviously obviously regards Russell Crowe as a threat, thinks he's killed him, whatever, and then decides, well, I can't have his family kicking around either, so I'm going to go and kill his um, wife and son. Now, does she get raped, or is she just... I'm sure she had her throat slit or something. I, it's not a pretty it's death. Not, it's not shown, but I'm... Yeah. But um, Joaquin Phoenix does... But there is a line later on mm-hmm. when he does reference that um, the, the Roman soldiers do, do rape her, whether he's telling the truth or whether he's just mm-hmm. saying that to get a rise out of Maximus, you don't really know. But I think you are led to believe that. Mm-hmm. Am I not merciful? During these episodes, I like to challenge Nick to take a different point of view on what he thinks about film and see it through the female gaze. Here we're having a bit of a conversation about Pride and Prejudice and the works of Jane Austen and do these works actually harm women to keep being remade into film and TV adaptations? Entailment of all assets on a male heir. Mm. Being a woman in Jane Austen's time was actually horrific in terms of being able to make your own decisions in life and yet we are still craving this kind of content in film and TV, which you could say is something which isn't really helping the feminist cause. Well, I think, well, first of all, I would say good literature is good literature. And it doesn't really matter when it was written. And there's a reason why you keep it, well, we keep adapting Jane Austen novels, but we also do it with Charles Dickens novels. And they, they, they are basically timeless. It's the reason why we still act out Shakespeare plays. I mean, I wouldn't say any of these things are are necessarily at their heart feminist piece of works, in my opinion. I would say, though, that Jane Austen is particularly focused on a set of circumstances which doesn't benefit women. Like, Dickens is about class and poverty and how that affects everybody. And I would say that he has characters... He has very strident female and male characters and everything is a little bit further along, isn't it? Because you're talking 100 years later. And so, therefore, there's a little bit of the difference in the evenness um, of how, let's say, money's spread out. Like, you have a lot of Dickensian novels where it's not really about the gender, it's just about the particular story. Um, And what was the other... Well, Shakespeare. Shakespeare. Now, Shakespeare, well, some of what Shakespeare does, he, you know, if you look at Romeo and Juliet, that's basically down the line Mm. and it's about heterosexual love. It's not really about anything being worse for Juliet than I think it is for Romeo. Mm. And also Shakespeare works within, um, like, sometimes like a magical realm. I think that Jane Austen lives in a slightly different realm, which is that... 
a lot of female watchers of these TV adaptations are perfectly fine to see themselves in this world Mm. and would be perfectly happy to have some of those choices taken away from them because it kind of makes for a simpler story. There's a, it's not the first time the Pride and Prejudice has been adapted and it certainly won't be the last one. We'll probably make another adaptation in 200 years' time and keep making them every periodically every 10, 15 years anyway. There was about 10 years ago, I think, was the Joe Wright-directed yeah. film with Kira um, Knight. Yeah. They are basically timeless. That, that's why they're classics. Um, the, the fact that um, the subject matter has, I don't know, just... All the world in which that the, the the novel was written no longer exists, and the subject matter may not be quite as relevant as it was. Is is still? It doesn't change the fact that it's an interesting story. But but should it? Do you think that Pride and Prejudice is now being viewed through the prism of this is a nice story that's set two hundred years ago, and therefore it doesn't really have any bearing on modern life, but yet you can still enjoy it in the way that yeah. you might enjoy a fairy yes, tale. You can. Yeah, um, there are still things in there which are relevant. Don't get me wrong, um, but as, as I think they always are with with these stories, I think they are with Dickens books as well. Um, but probably, probably not. Uh, if, if I don't know whether whether Jane Austen was trying to make a social point to that, she probably was. Yeah. Um, it's it's probably slightly lost on modern audiences because that world doesn't exist anymore. Oh, certainly. No woman can be really esteemed accomplished who does not also possess a certain something in her air, in the manner of walking, in the tone of her voice, her address and expressions. And to all this, she must yet add something more substantial. And the improvement of her mind by extensive reading. I'm no longer surprised at you knowing only six accomplished women, Mr. Darcy. I rather wonder at you knowing any. You are very severe upon your sex, Miss Bennet. I must speak as I find. If you've made it this far, congratulations. You now are well into the world of Beyond Bechdel. If you like any of those podcasts, all of those episodes are available and plenty more with plenty more to come. Hopefully, what we can do is make a little dent into a discriminative world and try and make the film, TV and other arts industries fairer for everyone who wants to be involved with them. Thank you very much. Here's the rest of Beyond Bechdel. Make sure you subscribe and then you'll get new episodes when they arrive. Until next time, bye.